0: Please take God's word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Very thankful for our worship team. Some of them had an opportunity to travel to Louisville this past week for a conference. And we do trust it was a richly rewarding time for them. Have you found 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, we are into. Our study of 1 Corinthians, embarking today on the fifth chapter. There are three things I hope you have kept in the forefront of your minds as we have come this far in our study. And three things that I hope uh, will remain front and center in your thinking as we make our way through to the end of the epistle. The first thing is this. I hope we are appreciating this letter's relevance. It's relevance. It is extremely relevant. All scripture is relevant. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, right? But there are certain portions of scripture that seem to be a little more timely than others. And this is, I perceive, to be a very timely portion of scripture it transcends space and time and speaks to many contemporary issues and questions. For example, is it okay to marry an unbeliever? For that matter, some of you younger ones, is it okay to date, court, an unbeliever? What should I do if my spouse is an unbeliever? Why is sexual immorality so serious? It certainly doesn't look very serious, As we look on at the society around us, how do I handle disagreements among believers? What should I do if I don't like my job? How do I remain pure when sexual perversion is the norm? How does the gospel shape the institution of marriage? Is it okay to divorce my spouse? How can I resist temptation? Are there really differences between men and women? Do they really have different roles? What should I do when factions, problems arise within the church? What are spiritual gifts and how am I supposed to use them? How do I relate to the cultural practices of those around me? How much of this culture am I allowed to embrace and enjoy? What does it mean to love someone? And on and on it goes. Paul answers all of these And many more questions besides, he answers all of these in this epistle. It is kind of relevant. It is extremely relevant. And it is very timely. So I hope we're keeping that front and center. Secondly, I hope we are clear on its structure. Daryl's going to bring up a slide now. The structure of this epistle. There's the starting point, what we need to get. There is obviously an introduction Chapter 1, the first nine verses, there is a conclusion, the entire 16th chapter. All right? That is typical of Paul's letters, an introduction, hey, how you doing, and a conclusion, so long, farewell. What do we have in between? We have his response to a report, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 6. All you have to do, if you don't believe me, is look at chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul explicitly states what? I have heard it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. And so he's received this verbal report to which he responds in this first major section. And then there is a second section, chapter 7, verse 1, through to the end of chapter 15, in which he responds to a letter You can glance at it, the first verse of chapter 7, and what does he say there? Now concerning those matters which you wrote to me. He has received a letter from them, and he is responding to that written letter in chapter 7 through 15. So there's the basic structure of the epistle. Now it leads to an obvious question. Well, what exactly is going on or what exactly does he say in his response to that report? And what exactly does he say in his response to that letter? Well, the first, next slide, Daryl. Here's his response to the report. He addresses four disturbing problems. Chloe's people have come to him And they've said, hey, do you know what's going on back there in the church at Corinth? Here are four problems. Very perplexing, disturbing, troubling problems. Quarreling is the first. And what have we done with that one? We've finished with it, right? Chapter 1, verse 10. Jonathan finished us off a couple of weeks ago. At the end of chapter 4, verse 21. That's the first disturbing problem. There's a second disturbing problem. Boasting is the chapter we just read. The fifth chapter. There's a third. First eight verses of chapter six. Defrauding. Lord willing, we'll consider it next Sunday. And then there's a fourth disturbing problem. Sinning. Verse nine through 20 of chapter six. And we're going to take a couple of Sundays and look at that. So here is Paul's response in the first major section to this report that he has received. He addresses head on. These issues, quarreling, boasting, defrauding, sinning. Next slide. Here we have his response to the letter he has received. Chapter 7 through 15, in which he addresses five perplexing issues. Marriage, a perplexing issue. Or at least some perplexing issues related to the institution of marriage. Some very interesting issues. And we'll get there sooner or later. Don't you worry. Chapter 7. Culture. How am I to relate to my culture? Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Worship. Spirituality. And the resurrection. There you have it. That is the structure of the letter. That is how we have mapped it out. We know now at every juncture where we've been, where we are and where we're we going. This is our road map. The third thing I want us to keep front and center is this: the letter's message. Next slide, Daryl, you can bring it up. And here it is, in a nutshell, in the introduction of the letter, first nine verses of chapter one. Paul lays the foundation. It is the foundation for everything that follows. Everything he says in the rest of the letter relates back. You can draw a line back to the first nine verses. Because in the first nine verses, he establishes what is of utmost importance. It is simply this. Who the Christian is or what the Christian is in Christ Jesus. He unpacks Our identity and that identity, what is foundational for everything in this book, that identity is summed up in one sentence. We are in Christ. And so James Packer, he writes in this regard, the taproot of our entire salvation is our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's everything, folks. It is the gospel. It is the main message we proclaim. It is the main foundation. Everything Paul, especially, that he has to say in all of his epistles, build on this fundamental truth. Do you understand who you are in Christ Jesus? Our identity. And are we living accordingly? This is the taproot of our entire salvation. Our salvation is Positional, We have been implanted into Christ. The Holy Spirit has taken hold of us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are baptized by Christ into the body of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are implanted into Christ, made one with him. This means that Christ's dying and rising are ours. God imputes them to us as if we performed them in our very persons. It means, secondly, that our salvation is relational. We have been implanted into Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit now speaks to us by the word of Christ. He speaks to us. And thereby nurtures and cultivates and strengthens our faith. Thirdly, our salvation is transformational. We have been implanted into Christ. And now the indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us to express our new desires in action. And those new desires are seen in what? Christ-likeness. Union with Christ is the taproot of our entire salvation. Paul's message in this epistle is very simple. We must live out our identity in Christ. We must live as those who belong to the age to come. What's the problem in the church at Corinth? They've lost sight of their identity. Therefore, they are not living out their identity. They are not living according to who they are in Christ Jesus. And what's the result? The church is plagued with problems. The first problem was what? Quarreling the first four chapters. The second problem is what? boasting. We come now to the fifth chapter. We can take the slides away. We're finished with them. We now turn our focus to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the second disturbing problem that has been reported to Paul, to which he now responds, a problem arising from an apparent, very apparent deficiency in their thinking as to who they are in Christ Jesus. And so it is actually reported, he says at the outset of the chapter, it's reported, I assume still by Chloe's people, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. There's problem number one, sexual immorality, gross sexual immorality But there is a closely related problem, which is perhaps an even bigger problem. What does he say at the outset of verse 2? And you are arrogant. That's the bigger problem. He's going to come back to it at the start of verse 6. Your boasting is not good and so yes sexual immorality in and of itself is a problem there is this individual this man who has his father's wife notice has it is present continuous it's not had this is something that it ha- this isn't something that happened in the past this is something that is ongoing this is ongoing deliberate unrepentant sin this man has his father's wife that is a huge problem obviously but the bigger problem is this And again, it stems from the fact that you've lost sight of who you are in Christ Jesus. You're arrogant. You're not doing anything about it. You're not addressing it. It's not merely that you're not aware of it, or you don't have all the facts, or you're not quite sure what's going on. It's not that, uh, you know, maybe you're afraid to deal with this. No, you're actually arrogant. You're turning a blind eye to it. You're actually kind of rejoicing in your apparent salvation all the while this is going on in your midst. And this testifies to the fact that something's wrong here. You're not getting something. Something is dreadfully amiss when it comes to your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of your position in Christ. And so Paul addresses this and he basically does two things. In verses 2 through 5, he tells them what they must do. And then in verses 6 through 13, he tells them what they must know. In other words, he gives the theological foundation for their actions, but their actions first, what they must do. And it's very simple. It's right there at the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He states it in slightly different terms at the outset of verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. He states it in slightly different terms, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, and he states it in just slightly different terms right there at the end of verse 13, purge the evil person from Among you. So that's what they are supposed to do. They are to remove this person from their midst. How is this done? Look at verse 4. When you are assembled, so like we're assembled right now, when the church is assembled, when the church is gathered, this is how you are to do this. Uh, And when you are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And so they are to do this firstly in the name of the Lord Jesus. They are to do this secondly, still in verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus. In other words, they are to do this by Christ's authority. It is something that Christ himself has commanded We see it explicitly in Matthew chapter 18. This is why historically, you think of the reformers, for example. This is why historically the reformers believed there were three marks of the true church. Three marks of the true church. Just three. Not Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, if you're familiar with that book. Just three marks of a true church. And if any of these marks were missing, you did not have a true church. You had a pretender. First mark, the preaching of God's word. Preaching, teaching of God's word. Second mark, celebration of the sacraments or the ordinances. Baptism and Lord's Supper. And the third mark, church discipline. Why? Because each of these things were explicitly commanded by Christ himself. That this is what his people are to do. They are to gather. And we have this by divine authority, divine command, divine ordinance, order to do these three things, preach, proclaim unapologetically the word of God, celebrate those ordinances which he himself instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and practice church discipline for the preservation of the holiness and the testimony of the church. And so it is by Christ's authority that we do this. This is how it is done. In Paul's own thinking, go back into verse three just for a moment, this is what he's already done. He says, though absent in body, I am present in spirit. He might be saying, look, I'm with you in thought. That could be what he is saying. I'm inclined to think that there's something of far greater significance going on here. I think he is testifying to the fact that he is with them. He is really with them. He's really with them by virtue of Christ's presence. Christ's presence meaning what? Well, we're all one with Christ by the Holy Spirit, meaning we are all one With one another. And so in a sense, although bodily he's not there, he is there by virtue of the fact that they're all one in Christ. I am present in spirit and as if present, I want you to understand I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Already passed judgment. This is what I've already done in my mind. I have removed this one. And that is what you now must do. And you must do it by the authority of Christ. Second interesting point is this. Why is this done? What's the purpose? Fifth verse. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's his flesh? It's an interesting question. There are diverse opinions on this. Some would say, well, the flesh is the body. So this individual is removed from the church, is shunned, so to speak, and turned back over to the present age, the old creation, the realm of Satan. And the purpose of this is the individual's death, death, destruction, so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I, I don't tend to agree with that. I think what is in view here when Paul uses the word flesh is what he has more often than not in view, which is corrupt, sinful human nature. That what he is hoping will be destroyed, what he he is hoping will be killed, is this man's self-love, his willful rebellion, and his stubborn orientation. Because you see, this man professes to be a Christian. And this man dares to continue, carry on like this in such flagrant sin and such a defiant violation of God's law. Paul says, no, you are to hand this man back over to the realm of Satan for the destruction of that self-will, that willful rebellion, that stubborn orientation. This man's attitude is this. I don't care. Paul's point is what? It is precisely that attitude that must die. That's what must die. I don't care what you say. I don't care what God says. You're not my judge. You're not the judge of me. I'm not accountable to you. I'm going to live however I please. Paul's point is what? Hand that man back over to the realm of Satan. For the destruction of that very thing, that going back into that realm, he might see himself as he really is and might be hounded by the devil himself. And the result will be what? That God will graciously use that means to kill that very thing which has led to his current crisis and situation and circumstances. That's an awful, terrible thought, and I don't mean to... Well, I guess I do mean to because I'm going to say it. At Grace Community Church, we should be very thankful because we have not had to do this on very many occasions in our history. We've had to do it on too many occasions, but we, shouldn't be, we should be thankful that we haven't had to do it on many occasions. But I trust as the church we are clear on this, what it is we were doing when we did this. We were not saying, and I have faces and names in front of me right now. We were not saying to these people, hey, we don't agree with you, but all the best. I hope it works out for you. No, we were communicating to these people. We fear for your soul. And this is the only means left to us by which we can communicate to you that you stand in grave danger. And our goal was precisely that which Paul articulates here in the fifth verse, that their self-will, their stubborn rebellion, their willful orientation, their self-love, might actually be destroyed, destroyed, mortified. In other words, that they might be saved in the day of the Lord. That's what they must do. What must they know? So what must they know in order to put this into practice? And so Paul shifts gears a little bit in verse 6 through to the rest end of the chapter. And now he focuses on the cognitive. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? And so here's the theological foundation now for what I have just told you, you must do. I have just stated explicitly, remove that person. You may be thinking to yourself now, well, why? And here I'm going to give you two reasons. The first is this. You are called to celebrate the festival. Verses six through eight. And I know that probably just sounds very odd to you. I'm going to unpack it in just a moment. You are called to celebrate the festival. Where am I getting that phrase from? Look at the start of verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven. The leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we need to celebrate the festival. This is something we must must know. What what does he mean by this? Okay, I'm going to walk you through it four steps because it is a little tricky. All right, we need to go back into the Old Testament, set a little bit of a context, but this is what we must know. First thing I want us to grasp is this in verse six. This is the first step. We just need to get this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, okay? We're starting simple. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do you get that? What's leaven? A little foreign to us. If we want to bake bread, we go to the store and we buy what? Yeast. You couldn't do that back then, right? So what did they do? Well, making bread was a daily experience, right? And every household made bread. And so they would have that raw dough and they would keep a little bit of it whenever they were baking bread. So they got the dough, it's ready to go into the oven. They would break a little bit off, set it aside, and the dough would go into the oven, make the bread, and that little bit set aside, the uh, yeast or whatever elements would be in that little piece of raw dough and set aside, it would begin to what? Ferment. That's leaven. And then when it's time to make bread the next day, you mix in the rest of the dough and that leaven spreads like wildfire, quickly infects, that new batch of dough, causing it to do what? To rise. This is the idea here. And so Paul's point is what? Just a little leaven. It's all it takes. We'll leaven the whole lump. And what does he want us to get from this? Just a little sin. And this isn't a little sin. This is a gross sin going on in the church of Corinth. I want you to understand the magnitude of this, the significance of this. This isn't something that happens in a corner. This isn't a private matter. This is a corporate matter and is infecting the body. It is corrupting everyone. Sin infects and sin spreads and it has devastating effects wherever it is left unchecked. That's the first thing he wants us to get. The second thing we need to get, the second step here to make sense of this celebration of the festival is we need to get into this language of unleavened. This language of Passover lamb at the end of verse 7. And Paul here has in his mind two feasts on the calendar of the nation of Israel. And they celebrated these two feasts in remembrance of the Exodus. And the first feast was the Passover. When they would take a lamb, they would slaughter it. And they would eat of that lamb and they would do so in celebration of their redemption from Egypt. They would do it in celebration of the fact that God had brought them by his mighty hand out of slavery and had formed them into a nation of their own. Closely related to that festival was the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days, the first day was Passover, and then seven days in which they had to get rid of what from their homes? Leaven, it had to go. Well, what was the significance of this? So closely associated with the feast of Passover, that these two feasts together, yes, they looked back to the Exodus and they celebrated the fact that they had been redeemed by God himself, his power, and that sacrificial lamb reminded them of that. But not only had they been brought out of Egypt physically, they had been rescued from the gods of Egypt. They had been rescued from the Egyptians. They had been brought out, separated from them, and they now constituted the people of God. And God himself had formed them into a nation. In other words, he had removed the leaven from them by bringing them out of Egypt. And so they were to celebrate these two feasts in commemoration of that event, the Exodus. Now, here's the third thing we need to get. It's really verse 7. This is where the whole argument hangs upon. And let's work through it backwards. What's the last statement in verse 7? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the Passover, the exodus, and the celebration of that feast, the Passover prepared for and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that feast. He is the great Paschal Lamb who has been offered up on behalf of his people to atone for their sin, to bring them out of bondage. Okay, we get that. Now work backwards through verse 7. What's the next thing he says there? You really are. Unleavened. Interesting. I think it's probably the key statement in the entire chapter. Because his purpose in the book is to convey to them what? You've forgotten who you are. You really are unleavened. You were brought out. You were redeemed. You were rescued. You were set apart to God. You are now the people of God. You are knit together with Christ by the Holy Spirit. You are now the temple of the living God. That is who you are. But work backwards now to the start of verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. In other words, act according to who you are. Understand you really are unleavened. Understand that you are in Christ. Understand that you are no longer imprisoned to or contaminated by this age. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart to God. Now act like it by cleansing out the old leaven. Do I dare ask if you've got all that? Have you got all that? Now you're ready for verse 8. It now makes sense. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Passover, unleavened bread. Not as the Israelites did. Oh, help me. No. It's a shadow. The substance has come. It's Christ. Let us therefore now celebrate the festival. How? Not with the old leaven. Because you're unleavened. The leaven of malice and evil. All that belongs to the present age. All that belongs to the old creation. All that belongs to the realm of Satan. No, not with that leaven but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that in Christ you're really unleavened, sanctified, set apart? Well, do you know this? Good. Act like it. Now, here's the second thing he says. Second thing he wants them to know, really in verses 9 through 13, not only are they called to celebrate this festival, they are called to judge the church. I wrote to you, verse 9, in my letter, a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, word of clarification, perhaps some had misunderstood him, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, and so I'm not saying we should all go off and live in monasteries. Some of you misunderstood. I'm not saying we're supposed to develop some sort of sub-Christian ghetto in Glen Rose, Texas. No, that, that's not my point. We're not supposed to divorce ourselves from the world. Yeah, we need to be very careful and cautious with the world. We're to be in the world and we're to be salt and light in the world. But no, we don't judge the world and we're not to separate from the world. Here, here was my, my, my point in verse 11. I am writing to you not to associate, very careful here, with anyone who bears the name of brother. So anyone who's running around saying they're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those, verse 12, inside the church whom you are to judge? Well, that's completely antithetical to what we hear today, isn't it? You're not supposed to judge. How dare you be so judgmental? Who are you to judge me? We're never supposed to judge. It's true. Judge not so that we be not judged. The Lord Jesus declares in the Sermon on the Mount. What's his point there, however? Speaking of hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite, is what he's saying. But judging, my friends, we are commanded to judge. Commanded to judge. And the context here is very obvious. It is a man, it is a woman who dares to bear the name of Christ. Yes, I am a believer. But continues on in unrepentant, willful sin and open rebellion to the will of God, they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or they are reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. The practice of removing, this practice of avoiding, this a practice of delivering, not associating, of cleansing, of purging. I want us to be very clear on this. I hope you are by now. It is absolutely biblical and it is absolutely imperative. And Paul places utmost importance upon the practice in this chapter. Its goal, oh, I need to be so clear on it. Its goal is to communicate through actions what hasn't been received through words. That's the goal. And so again, I look back in the past and I lament those instances in which, as a church, we were brought to this point of necessity Because left no other choice. But I hope we all clearly understand that it was a last resort. There were plenty of words that preceded this moment, this event. There was plenty of pleading. There was plenty of turning to God's word and declaring God's word and encouraging and exhorting. But words fell on deaf ears. And when that is the case, we are left with no other recourse. We are left with no other option than to communicate by our actions what has been willfully, obstinately rejected from our words. Al Mohler writes, and I tend to agree with him, the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. That's a profound statement. Do you agree with that? You think of the church and all that ails it today. He maintains that the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. And yet Paul lifts it up here, and he points to it as absolutely necessary for dealing with this problem that now plagues the church in Corinth. Yes, this is a problem. Sexual, unchecked sexual immorality. But it stems from a far greater problem, You're arrogant. And you're arrogant, why? Because you have lost sight of who you are in Christ Jesus. You want to know something very interesting? It's actually quite fascinating. Paul calls them arrogant for not disciplining. Try disciplining and implementing what Paul requires of us in this text and what will you be called? Arrogant. It shows you how far removed the church is from a biblical worldview. We do not think like the Lord Jesus. We do not think like the Bible commands us to think. We are not immersed in in, in the thoughts and the principles and the truths of the word of God. We have imbibed the thinking of our society to such an extent today that most professing believers would stand this text on its head and say, if you were to do this, you're arrogant. Paul says what? No, if you don't do this, you are arrogant. Humility is not an unwillingness to judge. Humility is a willingness to submit ourselves to the word of God, whether we like it or not. That's humility. Three quick questions as we wrap it up. Three quick questions by way of conclusion, application. There are, there are more than three, but these three will suffice. suffice. Here's number one. I think extremely important. Do we mourn over sin? Verse 2. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Is that our response, our reaction, when confronted with grave sin in our midst? Martin Lloyd-Jones declares we mourn because of the very nature of sin itself. We mourn because it has ever entered into the world. We mourn because it has led to such terrible results. We mourn because we have some understanding of what sin means to God. Is that our attitude? Is that our response? A mourning on account of sin. Here's a second very important question Do we prize the church like God does? Do we value, esteem the church like God does? Notice again those five terms which convey this reality. The first at the end of verse 2 let him who has done this be removed from among you. The second at the start of verse 5 you are to deliver this man to Satan in verse nine. And again, in verse 11, you are not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of these things and the fifth, right at the end of the chapter, verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. These commands, I pray convey to us what God's high esteem for his church. The local church, it is the temple of the living God, a failure, a failure to put into practice, a failure to act upon what Paul so clearly states in this chapter is a means by which we destroy the local church. We belong to God. He owns us by creation, right? having made us in his image. He owns us by election, having chose us before the foundation of the world. He owns us by redemption, paid an infinite price for us in the blood of his son upon Calvary's cross. He owns us by regeneration. He has caused us to be born again. He owns us by adoption. He has made us part of his family. We are, let me state it again, we are the temple of the living God. The dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And we are called to be holy as God is holy. We are to have esteem for the church. Third question is this. Based on verse 8, do we celebrate the festival? As Christians, those of us who are believers, we became one with Christ through faith. And because we are one with Christ through faith, yes, his dying and his living, his rising are ours. The penalty of our sin has been paid, it has been removed, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Equally true, when we became one with him through faith, this mark, a definite break with the past. We were translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. We were translated from death to life. We were translated from darkness to light. We celebrate now the feast remembering what? Now there's no going back, folks. We're not going back to Egypt. We've left. We are part of the age to come. There's no going back to the values and desires of the present age. There's no going back to the thinking of the old creation. We celebrate the festival. And we do so by cleansing ourselves, as Paul says in verse 8, of the old leaven, malice and evil. And we do so by worshiping God in sincerity and truth. And we do so day after day. We celebrate the feast, seeking to be in practice who we know we are already in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom for these things. And impress upon us your word, its truths, its lessons, its principles and realities shape our minds, our desires, and our values, our ambitions and dreams, and bring them into conformity with your word. Break our wills, we pray, that we might truly be enabled to pray your will be done and not our own. And we pray, our Father, that you would cause us to grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness, daily putting to death the works of the flesh, daily being filled with your spirit, in bearing that fruit which is so pleasing in your sight. We ask these things of you, acknowledging our dependence upon your grace. And we do so in Christ's precious name. Amen.